Galatians 2, verses 11 through 20. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For I... For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is God's word. Thank you, Chris. I'm going to try not to knock anything over if I do this. So, hello, everybody. So, we are continuing our series this fall, which is uh, we're going over our identity as a church. And our mission or our purpose for why do we exist is we want to make disciples of Jesus who live in light of the gospel. So, in other words, because Jesus has come and lived, died, and rose in our place. This is a gift of grace, an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. And Jesus will come again and bring us to dwell with him in glory. This makes us live very different lives. Uh, We should be very purposeful in light of the fact that Christ has come and Christ will come again. And then what we looked at over the past three weeks is essentially how do we go about making disciples of Jesus who live in light of the gospel? And so we went over, we do this through regular corporate worship and community and mission. So we've covered a lot of what do we do or our practices as a church, and what we're going to move into over the, these next four weeks are our core convictions as a church, or so like what are the undergirding principles that, that color everything we do as we go about making disciples who live in light of the gospel. And tonight is the most important one, which is gospel centrality, or centering every single thing we do on the gospel. And we'll talk about what that means tonight, but just know that if we drop this, if we don't center everything on the gospel of Jesus, the good news about who Jesus is, then we need to shut down as a church. So it's really important that we, that we get this. And it's been my hope and prayer that this will really make doxology, um, what well, is, by God's grace, what, what has made doxology what it is. But for years to come, it's my hope and desire and the leaders of doxology as well, that we remain centered on the gospel. And so what we're doing tonight is we're looking at a, a great case study about what it looks like to do this, because what happens when you heard uh, Chris reading that passage from Galatians chapter 2 is you have this passage where Peter forgets to live in light of the gospel. And now Peter, he was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. In fact, he was in the inner ring of Jesus' three closest friends. That's a pretty good school to be a part of, okay? And so if Peter forgets something so central, then we can too. 
And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. And so as we look at this passage, uh, we'll just, uh, we'll look at three things. And so we'll first see what is it that Peter forgets? Like what is it, what, what is it the heart of what Peter forgets? Number two, how does Paul exhort Peter in this passage? And then number three, what's the thesis statement that Paul gives at the end to wrap everything up? So first, what, what does Peter forget uh, that, that Paul gets on him for? Uh, second, how does Paul actually exhort Peter? And then number three, uh, what's the thesis statement that Paul gives at the end? I know those aren't like fancy alliterative headings or anything, sorry, but they'll, they'll just hopefully serve as a road, you know, like uh, signposts as we go through. So first, number one, what is it that, that Peter forgets? And so what's happening here is it's this exchange that takes place between Peter, who was a Jew, and then a group of Gentiles or non-Jews. And we'll get a little bit more into the exchange later, but essentially at, at the heart of what happens is Peter acts in a racist manner, to put it bluntly. And so Paul, Paul calls him out on it. Uh, Paul, Paul confronts him on it. And what he says in verse 16 is, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So what Paul's getting at there when he says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, is he's getting at what's at the heart of the gospel and what's so upside down from every other way to approach life. So like, what does it mean to be justified? Uh, to, to be justified, it's the opposite of being condemned. So if you are justified, it means you are approved. You are living rightly. And how every religion works outside of Christianity is the way you know you're justified before whatever God or spiritual being that you're worshiping is by doing a bunch of things. So you do ceremonial activities. You, you do good deeds. And then if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then God accepts you. Now, in our modern secular culture, there's, you know, a lot of people say, okay, well, I'm not very religious. I'm not seeking to be justified by a God. However, there, there is a, a Western version of this, a, a non-religious version of this where you need to be justified. And you, you see it all throughout. Like one very clear place is at the end of Saving Private Ryan, where it's right, so a Private Ryan, he was, people gave their lives to save him. And at the very end of the movie, Private Ryan is standing in front of the, the tomb of a man that saved him. And he looks at his wife, and he asks her pleadingly. He just, he says something like, please tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. And that, that's what everybody wants to know. You know, whether you consider yourself religious or not, at, at the end of the day, you want to know, like, tell me I've been a good woman. Tell me I've been a good man. Tell me that I've lived a life worth living. So that, that's the default way that we seek to justify ourselves, to know that we've lived the life that we should have lived. What, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, the only way you can know that you are justified, approved at the end of the day is if you're trusting in Jesus Christ because Jesus is the only perfect being who've ever lived. And if you're trusting in Jesus, then everything he's done is credited to you. And so God, the most beautiful, glorious being at the universe, looks at you and says, you are righteous, you are justified. You are my beloved child. And how this is playing out in this, in this scene here at, in, in Galatia is, so what, what was happening here is Peter was being intimidated by a group called the circumcision group. And you see that in verse 12. So Peter is, he's eating with Gentiles. And then when the circumcision group, so they were kind of like peers, uh, they were Jewish people, they show up and then Peter withdraws from the Gentiles. And what the circumcision group taught is maybe not what you would think. So the circumcision party, they believed in Jesus. 
Um, they, they believed that Jesus was God himself, the son of God who came, lived, died, and rose again, lived a perfect life. However, here's what they said, is they said, here's how you know that you are saved. Here's how you know that God loves you. You believe in Jesus Christ, and then you keep the law of God, and then God saves you. And so what's happening here is essentially a battle of orders. And, and here's what I mean. So there's a, a 20th century scholar named John Grisham Machem who summarized this passage pretty beautifully where he said, what's happening here, Paul's teaching versus the, the circumcision party is it's a battle of orders. So what the circumcision party was saying was believe in Jesus, obey the moral law, then God accepts you. What Paul taught, and this is what's at the heart of the gospel, is you believe in Jesus Christ, and then at that very moment, God loves you and accepts you. And then because of that, you obey. See, so same three components, you believing in Jesus, obeying the moral law, God accepts you, but it's the order that makes all the difference in the world. Or put even more simply, do I obey God to be loved by God, or am I loved by God in Jesus, and then I obey? And this sounds like a very, this sounds like a subtle difference, but these are two completely different planets, like two completely different realities. And something that I've learned both about myself and just getting to know a lot of people in the church is you can hear, yes, it's through Christ and Christ alone that I'm justified before God, but in practice, you're living out of the first order that the circumcision party was teaching. So it's Jesus plus something makes me justified before God. And so here's how this, play, here's how this plays out. So if you believe it's Jesus plus something makes me right with God, so what if you have doubts? What if you have impure motives in your walk with God? What if there is an area of your life that you can never quite get together? This is going to make you very anxious. Because how, how do I know I've done enough to be counted right before God? And this is why a lot of people in the church are very anxious people. And very sensitive to criticism. Because if you go after somebody in the church, like, just try to correct them on something that they believe counts towards their right standing with God, you're going to be very protective of that. It's going to make you a very bored Christian. Like, if, you're, if you go to church, for example, just to, to make sure that God isn't upset with you and to make him like you for another, that make, you like, make him like you for another week, that is a horrible reason to go to church. But that, that's, that's one reason why so many people who, who sit in churches are just kind of there like, okay, I just got to do this so, so to make sure that God loves me. Right? Or, it, or it can make you very selfish. So think about it. If you are doing good things to make God love you, ultimately, you're not doing it for God right? You're doing it for you. It'd be as if you're, say you find out like one of your aunts has this big inheritance and she's going to be giving her inheritance to some of her nieces and nephews. So then all of a sudden you start, you know, like hanging out with her a lot, writing her letters because you want her to like you. Are, are you doing it for her because you love her or are you doing it just because you want to get on her good side so that she gives you something? You see, but, but what Paul is saying here is it's no, it's just Christ alone. It's through Christ alone that God loves you, and then because of that, now you obey. This, so now you obey, why? Because you have a joy-filled heart? Because you have a full heart? It makes all the difference in the world. 
And even if you're, if you're outside the church, a lot of people I talk to outside the church just assume, and, and I get it, that Christianity is just another moral program, right? Where you okay, yeah, Jesus did some stuff, but ultimately at the end of the day, you have to be a good person and God loves you. And so here, here's a call to both good people and bad people uh, in, in light of this, that through Christ and Christ alone that you know God loves you. So, you know, if you consider yourself a good person, and often throughout your life you kind of oscillate, right, between considering yourself like a good person and a bad person, so you'll probably find yourself in each of these categories, but in general, a lot of people tend to live in one or the other. So if you consider yourself a good person, and I think especially in this area, there's a high temptation to do this because, I mean, in this area, there's a lot of very competent people, and quite frankly, a lot of very selfless people, people who want to do a lot of good to those around them. However, if, if you consider yourself a, a good person, ask yourself, could the reason why I feel distant from God and God's grace doesn't electrify me is because I do think it's Jesus plus these good things I do that makes God love me. It's like, well, of course God loves me. I mean, I've read my Bible every day since I was 10 years old. I've gone to church 90% of the time. Like, of course he loves me. And, and so, like, just if somebody were to ask you, are you a, like, one test, uh, test question for this could be, if somebody were to ask you, you know, are you a Christian? If your answer is, like, yeah, of course I'm a Christian, then you don't really get grace, because it's like, yeah, of course I'm a Christian, because, you know, I was so, so clear-sighted and humble that I was able to see my need for Jesus. Of course I'm a Christian, because I've been doing all these things for God. But when you understand that it's Christ and Christ alone and not by anything that you've done, your answer should be kind of like this laugh-filled, yeah, I, I am a Christian. Like, me, a Christian? Like, God actually set his heart on me and came to earth for me? It'll create a whole new lightness of step about you. Just think, like, is it continually surprising to you that Jesus did that for you, and it's Christ and Christ alone? But what about for, say, the, the quote, bad people? So, Say you do consider yourself a train wreck, or say there, there are parts of your past that you do wish you could erase. Do you see the, the incredible like, bondage you're always going to be in if it's Jesus plus something that makes God love me? But Paul is saying that this is the only way you can have freedom, because it's not Christ plus a moral record that makes God loves you. It's not Christ plus your sexual history. It's not Christ plus a faith like devoid of doubts. It's not Christ plus going to church. It's Christ alone. Christ alone justifies. Christ alone makes innocent. Christ alone saves. It's Christ alone who's died and risen again. Christ alone. But Paul says it's, it's not through what you do, it's only by Jesus. Take your gaze off of yourself and put them on Jesus. That's the only way you can have freedom. Jesus plus nothing equals being loved by God. It's amazing. And that's what Peter forgot. Because for Peter, and so here we're going to get into point two, like how does Paul exhort Peter? What's happening here where Peter withdraws from the Gentiles, so there's a long history here, but in essence, so all throughout history, 
So the Jews were given laws by God to follow. So a lot of ceremonial laws, uh, moral laws they had to follow. And all these laws at its heart was supposed to point to the fact that no one could keep these things, like no one could be perfect. And so they were supposed to point to Jesus Christ, the only one who could keep the law of God perfectly. But what happened with the Jews is instead of seeing these laws that God gave as a way to know God and resemble God and be a pointer to who God is, what they did is they used the law as a way to feel superior toward other ethnicities, essentially. And so what's going on here with Peter is, so in, in one sense, he had gotten the gospel on one level, where, where he understood, okay, it's, it's Christ and Christ alone that I made right before God. But there was still a part of him that believed, you know, really, God loved me also because I'm Jewish, and because I practice these ceremonial laws, you know, I do the washings, I, I am circumcised, I do these other things that these dirty Gentiles don't do. So what Paul does is he, he comes after him, and essentially what, what Paul tells him, he says, Peter, okay, if you believe that Christ, that, that God loved you and receives you based on nothing you've done, that, that includes your ethnicity, that includes the laws that you've kept, like how dare you pull away from Gentiles because they haven't kept the law? in the way that you have. And so what we need to see here is the key verse is verse 14. And when I learned this, this was a, this flipped my world upside down. And I, I hope it does for you. Because how, how Paul confronts him is he says in verse 14, but when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, talking about Peter. And that word not in step with the truth of the gospel, what he literally says is Peter was not ortho walking with the gospel. So ortho means straight. So Peter wasn't straight walking with the gospel. So think like ortho, orthodontist, right? So you go to there to make your teeth straight. Ortho means straight. And so what, what Paul's getting at is he's saying, is the gospel what you need to believe in order to know God and be adopted into God's family? Yes, absolutely. However, the gospel is not just the way you know God. But it sends out lines, essentially, in every area of life that you need to walk along. So it's not just the way you're saved, but it's also how you live. And see, a lot of Christians, they view the gospel as, okay, yeah, so like the gospel is for people who aren't Christians. So I need to tell them the gospel. They learn, okay, I need to trust in Jesus to be, you know, to have eternal life. Okay, I got it. But now I want to move on into meatier things. Now I want to move into more advanced things. What Paul's doing here is he's saying that no, the entire Christian life is continuing to rehearse the gospel over and over. And what lines does it draw out in the realm of career, in the realm of family, in the, in the realm of sexuality, in, in the realm of identity, in the realm of everything? And, and you walk in line with what it says. And so here's, like here, here's the, the, the power of what's happening. Because the question is, why doesn't Paul go after Peter and say, stop being a racist? Like, stop breaking the racism law, even though there is racism law. The Bible says all sorts of things about not being a racist. If Paul just said, stop being a racist, Peter, and just kind of like beat on his will, it, it wouldn't have gone deep enough. It wouldn't have actually changed Peter because so much of Peter's identity was who he was as a Jew. And so like one small example, so about five years ago, I remember coming across this article in the New York Times, and it was called the enduring hunt for value, the enduring hunt for value. And essentially what this article was about was this guy interviewed people like Michael Phelps and other famous and very successful people. And he noticed that a lot of these people who were very successful, whether it be in sports or business, continued to work and work and work and work. 
Or if they were really wealthy, they would continue to make more and more money. And so we went and just asked them, you know, why do you continue to work so hard? And the consensus across all these people was, you know, they were just being very honest. They said, honestly, like, because I need to know I'm of value. Like, it's not enough just to have won a gold medal four or five times. It's not enough to be CEO. So I need to keep going because right after one victory, the next day I'm wondering, is my life really worth anything? And so you see, if, if Paul tells, I'm mixing up Paul and Peter a lot, but yes, if Paul tells Peter, essentially just, okay, stop being a racist, Peter might go, okay, but then he's going to end up finding his identity, his value in something else, right? So maybe now it's not being a Jew, but maybe it's, you know, doing something else good that makes him feel really good about himself. So that's why Paul has to exhort him with the gospel, because when you remember the gospel, it, it doesn't just go after your, your will. It doesn't just beat you over, over the head, but it gets at your heart. Because when you see, like, oh, my gosh, even though I've done nothing to deserve God's love, God has given himself for me. God has died for me. I mean, now your sense of worth is no longer in, okay, I'm a great worker, or I have, some, I have a love partner, or I have, I have a love partner, or I've done X, Y, Z. But your identity is fully rooted in the fact that, what does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? The Son of God has, has loved me and given himself for me. So that's why Paul exhorts him with the gospel. He says, Peter, you need to walk in line with the truth of the gospel because that's the only thing that's going to incite real change. And so just a, a few, this is such a massive topic. This was a really hard sermon to like trim down to about 35 minutes because I mean the gospel covers everything. But so just think very broadly, is there any area of life where you're not applying the gospel to? So the fact that God has given himself for you, now you're adopted in Christ, you're going to be raised in glory with Jesus. Because for a lot of people, for example, that might lead you to serve the church a lot. You work with your hands, but you still hold your money really closely to your chest. Or you might give generously of your money, but then if you're asked to give a day or two days to serve the poor or to sit with somebody else, it's like, no, because your time's more important. So just look at, is, is the way you go about your career in line with the gospel? Is the way you go about your love life in line with the gospel? Is the way you approach church in line with the gospel? And just a really simple example I saw of this, this was a couple weeks ago at community group. So um, one girl in our church, she's, she's a newer believer, and we were talking in community group about how grace is an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. And what she said was really encouraging to me because she was applying this, and just I don't think she realized how profound this was because we, also, we so often miss this. But what she said was, we, she, was just, she kind of just volunteered the information. She said, you know, I'm the type of person where it really bothers me when somebody doesn't give me gratitude. Like if I do something for someone and they don't tell me thank you, like it just, it just bugs me. And I was like, yeah, that kind of bugs me too sometimes. And what she said was, she says, since realizing that God was unobligated to give his life for me, and even though I wasn't even that thankful for him after he did it, and yet he loved me and continues to love me, like now I can... I'm so free now from needing gratitude from other people. Like if I do something for somebody and they don't say thank you, I'm like, that's okay. I don't, I, I don't tell God thank you all the time in, in ways that I should. It's just like a very, very simple example. 
is to just think like, is, is there any area of life where you're just still living for yourself instead of, instead of applying what Christ has done for you? And let's, like, let's think about just a couple of ways that this may apply to us as a, as a corporate body, okay? L- living in light of the gospel or gospel centrality as a corporate body. First, what this means is from A to Z, the gospel is going to be the thing that we stand on week after week. So especially in our cultural climate in the West, where you see a lot of church attendance declining, you get a lot of people saying, okay, well, churches need to come up with these, you know, fancy new strategies to, to try to get people in. And you have some churches who, they don't use this language, but it's kind of like, all right, let me teach you something new. Like, let me invite you into the inner sanctum of ideas and tell you these new secrets. But that's not the gospel. It's only the gospel that reconciles you to God. It's only the gospel that, that gives you an identity that doesn't fluctuate up and down depending on performance. It's only the gospel that changes lives, that changes neighborhoods. And so from today until this church ceases to exist, we will always be standing on the gospel, which is at the heart of, of all that we preach, how we disciple others, how we do community. Okay, so how, how else does it play out? When we stand on the gospel as the heart of what we do, it should create a diverse church. What I mean by that is diverse in ethnicity, uh, diverse in political convictions, diverse in temperament. Because, so say our our church, for example, preaches more about why you should be aligned with a particular party. Or if at our church here, we're all about being, you know, very introspective and introverted. Or if we're all about being, you know, emotional or talking a lot. Like what happens is you tend to you know, aggregate around like common personalities, around common political affiliations. But when it's the gospel that it's the heart of what we do, when, when Jesus is the one hill that we die on, that means there should, we should be a church that's very diverse, that we reflect the, the ethnicity of, of, the people that, of the peoples that live around here, okay, the, the temperament of the people around here. So just think about like, if you tend to be a more quiet person, sometimes really talkative people annoy you, right? Or if you're a talkative, more emotional person, you're like, why are you, and you meet like a more introspective, non-talkative person, you're like, why are you so rigid, you know, all the time? <laughs> okay, like we should be a, a church that's very open to people who, who are different. It should kind of make the world go, why, like, why is this group of people hanging out together? And I think like by God's grace, we already are on, off to a pretty good start there. And so I just want to encourage you guys to, to keep going as people who come in who are different to receive them as God f- first received you in Jesus. And then the final one, how this plays out, the gospel impacting everything that we do is to an extent, I think we should either as individuals or as a church often get pushback from both like more liberal circles and also more conservative church, uh, more conservative circles. Here's what I mean, because often in like cons- very conservative churches, th- these are generalizations, and I realize that, but as it's, it's like, a generalization, very conservative churches, they tend to be like very hard on truth. Like, I'm just going to beat you over the head with the truth. I'm going to preach fire and brimstone, but I'm not going to create an atmosphere where it's, where it's safe to doubt, where it's safe to ask hard questions, where I care about the poor and people's physical needs as well, right, along with their spiritual needs. And then as a generalization for far liberal circles, you hear a lot, well, you know, we just need to, we don't need to, you know, care about like really hard truth. We just need to affirm everybody. We just need to go out and and meet people's physical needs. But, you know, don't draw these, you know, binaries in the sand about who's in and who's out. Liberal circles draw binaries too. It's just not as obvious. Um, But what happens when we're centered on the gospel, on one hand, yes, we're going to stand on the truth of who Jesus is. 
because this is the best news that the world has ever heard. Okay, and we're going to preach it, and we're going to tell it to other people. But at the same time, we're going to do it with compassion. We're going to do it with empathy. We, we should be a church where people can come in who don't believe what we believe and ask hard questions. And we should care about people who are disadvantaged and people who are marginalized. Because, because that's what the gospel does. It's massive implications. It affects everything. Okay, so finally, number three, we'll look at what is the, the, the thesis statement that Paul gives here at the end in, in Galatians. And what he says to wrap all this up after he talks about, okay, what's at the heart of the gospel? It's Christ and Christ alone. Uh, what does it do? Okay, it impacts every single area of your life. What he does here in, in verse 20, and if you've been in the church for a while, you've heard this verse, but it's, it's a wonderful verse, and I hope it takes on even just one new shade of meaning for you this evening. So Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And here's what I want us to see, and this was my most fervent prayer this week as we were walking into this Sunday. So the the danger of having a mission statement like we have, okay, so disciples of Jesus who live in light of the gospel, right? So we live very purposefully in light of what Christ has done. The danger with that is it makes us focus on how we're living. Okay, so if you have a week where you're not living in light of what Jesus has done, like what, what did that do to you? And but what this verse does, it's a very helpful corrective, is you think about our mission as a church, disciples of Jesus who live in light of the gospel, it'll help you focus on what does it mean to live in light of the gospel? Because what God cares more about is not what you're doing for him, but in who you are as his child. And so, to, like what I, for a lot of people, what happens is you're going about your day, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you tend to live in the courtroom all the time, right? So you're always thinking about, like, am I condemned or am I justified? You know, based on what you're thinking, what you're not thinking, based on what you're doing, what you're not doing. And so, so much of your life is just trying to be justified, either justified before yourself, justified before God, justified before other people. And a guy who I think is very helpful for saying how this verse helps us focus on who we are in Jesus and not on what we do was a man named Martin Luther. And he was a monk, right? He lived during the time of the, the Reformation. And Martin Luther, he really got the holiness of God and the justice of God. But this created a problem for him because since he actually understood it, he was like, okay, when I look at my life, I am not living rightly before God. He was a minister, but he'd go to confession like 10 times a day. <laughs> the priest would have to like kick him out because he was always confessing like things he was always doing wrong. And what Luther said, and I'm modernizing this example a little bit, but essentially what he said was, you know, at the end of my life, I'm going to stand before God. And basically what's going to happen is there's going to be a video of my life that plays before God and plays before everybody else watching. And I know what I'm going to see on that screen. It terrifies me because I'm going to see all the secrets that I tried to hide from other people and from God. I'm going to see all the times that I should have acted and didn't. I'm going to see all those dirty or just bitter or selfish thoughts I nursed in my head. 
I'm going to see all those sins that I constantly tried to run from and escape from. And it's not, even, it's not going to necessarily be a spectacular film. It'll just be a very honest portrayal of my life. And if God is a just God and a righteous God, and he is, then what choice does he have to say but not righteous? But then when Luther started reading books like Romans, and he started, and he read Galatians, where he see Paul's right, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What that verse is saying is, because I'm crucified with Christ, what that means is, when Jesus died for me, it's as if I was condemned and died for my sins. And because Jesus lived for me and rose for me, God loves me as much as he loves Jesus. And so what this means is if you are trusting in Jesus and you get to the end of your life and God hits play on that video, what's not going to be shown is a video feed of your life. You know what you're going to see? You're going to see a little baby boy born among animals. Then when he was 12 years old, loved being in his father's house. A man who, as he became older, he gave sight to the blind. He was willing to engage with and touch lepers and welcome in the marginalized and give honor to women in a society that degraded women. And then even though he was the most innocent man who ever lived, he was then mocked and whipped and hung up on a cross and put in a tomb and then rose again three days later to ascend at the right hand of the Father. And then God's going to look from that video to you and say, you are mine. You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. Nothing in all of heaven and earth can separate you from my love. This is the only place you can find freedom, guys. That God loves you and adores you and accepts you as he loves and adores and accepts Jesus. And how much does he treasure Jesus Christ? And this is why it has to be this wonderful news of the gospel that we stand on every single week and preach every week and tell others about every single week. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's go to God in prayer.